0: This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today is the amazing Mark Billy Billingham. You might know him from the series SAS, Who Dares Wins. Uh, he has also been in The Gunman with Sean Penn and has two books out, the first one is The Hard Way Adapt, Survive, and Win, an autobiography. And the new one is called Call to Kill The Enemy is Everywhere. And that is a novel, that is fiction. But those of you who know me know I've been long fascinated by the SAS, uh, their history, their lessons. Um, and Billy Billingham, he started out in the parachute regiment and then went into the SAS. Serving in Iraq, serving in Afghanistan, and other hotspots around the world. He's also a fellow sniper. We talk a little bit about that. And he's bodyguarded many high-profile clients to include Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Amazing. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave a rating and review wherever you watch or listen to your podcasts. Now, without further ado, Billy Billingham. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, and so I've never, you know, this is a fairly new podcast. It's been on for a, for a few months now. Uh, and I've never read someone's background when they've been on. Usually I just say a couple of things and we hop right in and go. But yours, I'm going to read because this is so amazing, so impressive. Um, and I'm just uh, I'm just in awe of everything that you have done. Uh, and I know you'll be super humble about everything because I've been following you on the uh, social channels and okay. and uh, reading about your your two books and and all that sort of thing. Um, but I want to read this and then uh, then we'll just hop right in if that that works for you. Mate, you're
1: leading. Let's go.
0: All right, let's do it. All right. So uh, Billy joined the parachute regiment in 1983 and served until 1991, holding an array of positions, including patrol commander for operational tours in many worldwide locations, and also served as a training instructor. For the regiment as a military specialist, he joined the SAS in 1991 as a mountain troop specialist and has been responsible for planning and executing strategic operations and training at the highest levels in numerous locations: Iraq, Afghanistan, South America, and Africa, and has led hostage rescues. Billy is a certified SF and counter-terrorist sniper instructor, advanced evasive driving instructor, which is super fun. I love Very the driving great. stuff. Uh, tracking, jungle warfare, navigation instructor, demolition, sabotage instructor, ski mountaineering, rock climbing, abseiling, which for those in this country is repelling, uh, ice climbing instructor, combat survival, RTI instructor, counter-terrorist instructor, and has worked as a patrol medic, trauma life support agent for five hospitals. Wow. After his career, Billy became a bodyguard and looked after such people as Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Sir Michael Caine, Jude Law, Hulk Hogan, Kate Moss, Russell Crowe, and Tom Cruise. I mean... Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> ah. awesome. So I want to start, I want to talk about your new book. I want to talk about your last one, yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, but I think the best place to start is kind of at the beginning. What drew you into the military and then into the SAS?
1: Yeah. Um, I, 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 I was uh, kind of a, a checkered growing up, you know, I was a little bit of a wild card. I grew up on a council estate in the West Midlands. That's like a, a poor area and I got into gangs, I got into trouble. I left school at 13, I had no education, I got stabbed at 15 nearly died. I um ended up working illegally in a factory 12 hours a night at the age of 15 again nearly died again in a, a vat of caustic soda which is you know which is to treat uh, metal uh, to strip down metal. Um no way. Yeah, and 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 that was kind of the the sort of final shot across the bows to me to say Grow up, get wise, and do something positive. And that, and that was to join the military. Somewhere in between all that, i just said, I, I joined the cadets. I don't I don't know if you really have it in America. And it, it's we have like Boy Scouts yeah, and there's the sea cadets,
0: and mm-hmm. I think there's air cadets and things yeah. like that. But uh I think yours is a little little di- bit different, but yeah. uh but similar.
1: If it follows you know, the normal army, you know, but but for kids, but you get treated the same, believe it or not, you know. You get if you step out of line, you get a slap. If you do something wrong, and so it's quite, quite sort of heavily disciplined in the old-fashioned way, or it was back then. So I, when I went into that cadet at a young age, I realised, wow, this is what I need. I need discipline. I need something to to keep me on the straight and narrow. So anyway, after fifteen, going through all those trauma and all those problems, I, I uh, applied to be join the military at the age of sixteen, and I didn't get in because uh, after being stabbed, I had this accident. Working in this factory and um, it, it delayed me because of the injuries I had to my legs. And I eventually joined the parachute regiment in 19, uh, 1983. So, just after the Falklands War of 1982. And after the Falklands War, all the guys who'd been there had come back to the cadet unit. And I, I remember listening to all their stories and thinking, wow, because I wanted to be a Marine. I was a, a Marine cadet and it made sense for me to go that direction. But I listened to everybody's story and I was listening to a paratrooper who'd been shot twice on Mount Longdon, and I was thinking, wow, I just loved the rawness of his story and his life and the way the parachute regiment seemed to be. And it just felt more for me, for my upbringing, that was the direction I wanted to go. And the reason I then joined the parachute regiment. And uh, yeah, I joined at 17, probably similar to some what you did, um, you can do
0: a delayed entry in the United States. You have to have your parents sign at age 17. Oh, really? Um, so you couldn't join at 16. That's amazing that you guys could do something uh, at 16 that set you on that path. For us, I believe it's 17, and then you can't go in. It's called the delayed entry program, and then you can go in when you're actually 18, uh, wow. usually right after you graduate uh, graduate high school. But uh, you could sign up at 16. Yeah, yeah. You can start wow. at 16. And you
1: go into what they call junior leaders. It's like, uh, well, it was full on. It's full on, but you're not allowed to go on operations until you're okay. 17, which is...
0: At <laughs> the ripe old age of 17, they wound up to- pulled off.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so at 17, you can. So I, you kind of classed as an adult by then. So I joined as an adult and then went through all basic training, you know, um, traditional regiment training, airborne division unit. And I remember turning up and thinking as a young kid there, I had so many reasons to be there. One, I wanted to make something of myself, be somebody. Secondly, I did not want to go back to the lifestyle I had because I probably wouldn't be speaking to you right now, if I'm honest. Yeah. So I had to get away from the regime and the lifestyle I had and make some, something of, me, of myself. And when I joined, I remember looking down the, the, the line of people who were 70, us 7-0 seven all joined. And I was the youngest and the skinniest. I looked down the line and people had big hair chests and tattoos. And I remember thinking, yeah. what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> I've got no chance. you know." But then as time went by, people the line got smaller and I was still there. And I was thinking, wow, the guy with the big muscles and the tattoos is gone and I'm still here. Yep. I'm here. So I grew in confidence. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. And mm-hmm. it, it, it was a boost to me. It was like, wow, not only did I need to be there, I started to feel like I should be there. I have a right to be here. And as the time went by and by and by, you know, I went all the way through. And out of seven, zero that started, seven of us finished, seven originals. And wow. And I actually became what they call the champion recruit, which was the number one recruit, which was something I never dream of ever doing. All I wanted to do is get to the end and have a job and get out of my own town of Walsall and, and be, be, be someone. But the beauty of where I was at that time, all the instructors had all been to been to war they'd been to mm. they have been to Northern Ireland so they have done mm. with terrorism and all that sort of stuff but then they'd also been to proper combat you know end-to-end combat mm. in the Falklands War and so they knew what they were talking about and I think at that very time then coming from the background I had I used to think I was a tough guy and I was this that I was somebody but then I realised actually I'm, I'm a nobody I'm a small fish in a big pond these are the big fish these are good people And I thought that's where I want to be and he just gave me that Rocket and that fire in my heart to be there.
0: So, yeah, yeah, very similar to uh, my experience when I got to to buds to seal training, yeah. and I was in line there. It was the same thing. We had I think two hundred and six uh, started. Um, but I looked down that same line and I saw they got huge guys that were huge. And then we'd go on these runs and guys, you know, I was pretty good runner. So I was up there near the front, but not in the very front. And then same thing on the obstacle course, these guys are flying through this thing. And I'm, you know, a little over middle of the pack, you know, I'm up there, but I'm not, you know, in the very front and same thing on the swims, but then hell week starts and hell week first couple hours. Those biggest, strongest, mostly the loudest, though, yep. uh, guys were just coming off that beach, coming out of that surf zone, ringing that bell three times and quitting. And people would see them quit and go for it. And uh, and I was in that. And a lot of the people in the surf zone next to me would say, come back, don't quit. You know, yelling at them to because you know where they're going because okay. you have that bell that's right there. It's in the we put it on the uh, in the trailer hitch of a vehicle for Hell Week. So the whole week it's within sight. So we make it very easily to ring yeah. easy to ring that thing. And I never said, come back. I would be like, "Hmm, "Hmm," because that's the program working. And I loved it. And I felt the same way. Um, and, uh, and I think that's probably very similar to a lot of special operations units, military units. Uh, when the, when the skinny kid shows up there and sees the biggest, strongest, loudest person quit, it gives you that boost. You almost take some of their power and, uh, and you're like, okay, I'm in the right place. This, this This program is working. So that's, uh, no, I love, I love that. And so for you, You knew you were going into the parachute regiment right away. You didn't go through something else like uh, uh, where you could have then gone to a few different areas depending on the needs of the military. You signed up to specifically go to parachute regiment.
1: Yeah, and it's it's um, one of the only three units of the British military that has a selection process. You know, you can go into the engineers, you can go into the signals, you can any other unit, then go to the airborne unit. But I went directly to that. That's you know, I wanted that challenge. I wanted to be that one of those sort of elite, right from the start. So yeah, I mean, it it was kind of the proudest moment of my my life, you know, being badged as a parachute regiment soldier, a paratrooper. And I had nine brilliant years there. I stayed there. I I was able to, I did two operational tours through that nine year period. And then I ended up back at the training establishment as a directing staff, you know, so I'd gone full circle. I've done all that I wanted it. to do, been on operations, been on exercise, traveled the world. And then, then it was, after that time, it was like, where do, where do I go next? And then that was and SAS, SAS.
0: That was the SAS. Now, before you came in, did you know about the SAS? Because Princess Gate had happened a couple of years before yeah. you came in. Uh, were you aware of them and, and who they were? Because they'd gained uh, some notoriety by then, obviously, an incredible history in World War II. And, uh, so were you aware of who they were and that that might be something that you, you would want to do later on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was aware of them, um, but that was not a driving force to go there initially. It wasn't like, as soon as I got in the military, that's where I need to go. I just wanted to enjoy my journey and and see where that took me, you know? Start at the bottom of the pile and climbing up, becoming a you know Lance Corporal Corporal in charge of people and, and making operational decisions in the parachute regiment. And then it just reached the ceiling, really, and you become more aware of who the regiment are. You don't really know exactly where they are and what they're doing, but you've got a good idea. You know, anything that's strategically operational, directed is going to be special forces as opposed to the normal infantry, which it was. So I thought, I need to go there. I want to challenge myself again. I'd done all my challenges. And you know, I was 24 years old at the time. And I thought, where do I go next? There's the next. You know, it's like the, the Champions League, the top of the champ. That's where I want to be. And I had a lot of friends that had gone before me. So I'd meet up with them every once a year, maybe, and have a beer and chat. And they never really tell me what they'd done, but I knew they were up to some good shit. And I thought, that's where I need to be. So that was my next sort of goal. That's where I need to at least try. It was about, you know, one, I wanted to do the job, of course. But two, a challenge for me. Can I do it? Just like when I joined the Panachea, can I do it? Back then, I really needed to do it because I I needed to get away from the lifestyle I had. But now, I was already established. It was more really for me to go prove to me I can do this and, and I wanted to do it, you know?
0: So- oh, yeah. No, exactly. Same. Very similar for for me. I mean, we're all, we all want to test ourselves. You know, we, we serve our country, but there's, I think for all of us, hey, we want to push ourselves and we're, and if you go and are drawn towards special operations, that means that you want to push yourself and test yourself at the the highest levels that yeah. that you can find. And, uh, and for you guys, did you, uh, is there a, a selection of like a small selection kind of like for us, we have to do some pushups, some sit-ups, some pull-ups, a run, a swim, that sort of thing. Uh, take a couple of tests before we actually go to, to buds, to seal training. Um, do you have to do that? Uh, something like that, check a box before they say, okay, at least we, we know he's got this baseline before you go to uh, SAS selection. No,
1: you don't. It, it's you, it, the way it works. You volunteer to go. Your unit then looks at your commanding officer of the unit or your officer commander of the unit, you know, which goes, okay, yeah, he's, he's fit, he's, you know, intelligent enough, he's this, he's it's a complete waste of time, you know, fucking big fat. You can't be asked to do it. They're like, right. nah, you're not going to get the, okay. you're not going to get the, even the chance to go. So you kind of, you you personally select to say you want to go, you put in your request and they go, okay, yes. And then back in when I did it, there was a two-year waiting list. So, you could apply, but you command no. manage to say no. I need you for the next two years because we've we'll got operation tours coming up. And mm-hmm. and if you're a good guy, it's like anything. You've been the manager of a a, a, fame, a big football team. You don't want to let your players go because they're right. players. So yeah, that's the way they look at it. But they can't deny you. What they can do is you okay. know you for two years. So there's no real pre-selection process. It's you volunteer, you go, and then okay. that's it. You 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 turn up on the date that. Dave said, you can come. And I think when I started, there was 283 that started. Wow. I think by day two, we lost 83. Amazing. On the second day on the fan dance. And I mean, I know, you know, the process of what we go through, but for anybody out there, I don't. it's yeah. We do these sort of what we call the the eels, the, the mountainous phase. Then we do the jungle phase. Then we do the... Um, uh, escape an evasion phase and then the, the final counter-terrorist and then join your squadrons over a six-month Amazing. period
0: six-month period and is that is it, do i am i saying it right the brecon beacons is that the is that how you say yeah the and black that's mountains, and that's it's better known okay. as black,
1: black mountains but yeah the brecon beacons okay it's famous or infamous depends on yeah which side you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> better if you've done it or not i guess yeah. but uh a lot of patrolling a lot of uh a, orienteering map and compass work, getting from yeah. point A to point B with your rock, making your times, doing all that sort of thing. And essentially putting put through something that uh, you can also self-select out of very easily, I, I, I believe, um, and just find out who really wants to be there. Is that is that how that first phase goes? Yeah, it goes? is.
1: The, fir- the first phase is, is it's all endurance. It's all about self-motivation. Well, the whole thing is self-motivation, but this is the first step on the ladder where the ethos of the regiment is, as from a directing staff, you you, you turn up on selection, and there's for the first time in any military career, you don't get shouted at, you don't get screamed to go catch up, do this, you get asked to do it. And for a lot of people, they can't handle that. You know, you've done nine, ten years in the in the military, normal military where you know you're getting dragged to the front if you're having a bad day, you get pushed, because you should do it's teamwork. But in the regiment, it's total self motivation. The guy, you know, you turn up and you're going to go. Okay, okay, today's march is. They won't tell you how long it is. It's normally about. It can be anything from 24 to 36 kilometers, miles, whatever it is. Wow. You, you just never know. You, do, you want to get yeah. one checkpoint. You start here. This is where you go, and then let you go. Okay, Billingham, you're at checkpoint A. You're on the red route. You're going to go to checkpoint B. This is a grid. You work. You work it out. You give your bearing. You tell the DS your bearing. He goes, okay, off you go. And they don't encourage you or discourage you. It's down to you, and that is Jack. Why most people, probably with your selection as well, is why they fail. Because you know, for anybody, like we all, have, we all have bad days, and you think, you know, if no one's there to drag you along. It's easy to go, "Fuck this, I'm done, I'm over this." And you, can. Yeah. and because no one's there pushing you, a lot of people do. They've never not been able to do it by themselves. They've had to be yeah. encouraged and. And that's why so many people fail it. But the first phase over the mountains, as you say, is—I think, yeah—it's four weeks, and that just—that's just there really to whittle people down. Everybody thinks like I did. That is selection. Once you get through the hills, get through the mountains, carrying that rock, that house on your back, and marching at speed, and and being able to navigate day and night and through the mist and whatever else. Once you get through that, that's it, and that's exactly what I thought. But it's not. Yeah. That's not even the starting point because, well, it is the starting point because. By the time you get to the end of that, you've probably only got about 30 people left. And then yeah. broken down into smaller groups, and then you go to the jungle. The jungle is selection. And people don't realise that. And interesting. Yeah. And it's funny because I'd already been to the jungle at least twice with the parachute regiment. So to, for me, I've full sense of security. I thought, I know this. I know the jungle. I love the jungle. And I do. I thought this is gonna be easy. <laughs> Fuck me, was did I get caught out?
0: Really? Oh. Mate. So what was, what was so different about, uh, being there in selection than it was, than than you, the different experience than you had had with the, uh, the parachute regiment being in the jungle. Yeah. Cause I saw a lot of your, the, some of the, your pictures and stuff. I can tell without even hearing you tell me that you feel very comfortable, not comfortable, but you you're, you're drawn to that jungle. It seems yeah. just from some of the photos and the things that I've, that I've seen you talk about. Um, so how, what was, uh, what was it like for you in, in the jungle in selection?
1: So it was basically like being on the mountains again, Yeah, covered in trees, 100% humidity, not really being known when you're being watched and not being watched. It it was just, it was just a complete mentally and physically from day one to the end, just challenging, you know, you'd literally get up and, and you know, and I know, you know, you get in the jungle and I'd been there many times before. All of a sudden it seemed more claustrophobic. It was more, Mm. you know, intense, covered in creatures all the time and all the rest of it. And, you're carrying the same amount of weight or even more than you were on the mountains, which for me, I thought, this is ludicrous. Why would it be carrying any more weight?
0: Mm.
1: You know, but you've got your radios, your Dems kit, you've got your, your specialist kit, blah, blah, And that weighs, you know, 80, probably 90, 100 pounds, which doesn't sound a lot right now, but when you can that day after day after day in sleep deprivation, you're sweating all the time, so you're dehydrated, it's horrendous. And And what you don't realize, or a lot of people won't realize, is under the canopy of the trees, People and I did. I thought pretty level. It's like that. It's the same as the mountains, you know. It's up, it's down, and you are all day long, and it's hard. And you just there's nothing difficult about the soldiering. The hardest thing is navigation, of course. You know, you can you can literally walk one three meters from your patrol, turn around if they're not behind you. Like where did they go? You're not allowed to start crashing and banging and shouting. It's all silent. It's all whispering, and you you know you you like where did I go? And if you get the wrong direction and start to go, oh my god, you're in a world of pain. Because you can't you can't bounce bounce off a, a cross junction, you can't bounce yeah. off this. There ain't none. You might find mm-hmm. a tributary, a water tributary, or a river junction, but they're few and far between. And you're like, wow. So you know I did. So it's the difficulties of the basic stuff, but made difficult because of the pressure you put yourself right. under and you are under because you never hardly see the DS, the directing staff. And I know this because I became a director and staff on selection as well. So I knew how to be in the right place, how to hide, how to uh-huh. and watch people. And that's what it's all about. And that part of selection is really about, it's not about soldiering. We're not interested in soldiering there because it's basics. It's about you. It's about who are you really? You know, and we can all put up this sort of barrier and facade of when people are watching, you all being good and help your buddy out and do this and take your burden off slowly. As soon as the chips are down and you're hanging out your ass, you're fucking patrolling off it. Jeez. And you, you know exhausted. And you don't think the diestis is there. You just throw your burger down. Argue with <laughs> each other. And that's when you see people. Ooh, yep. Who are you? And that, and that that's what it was. That, that's what the jungle was about. And if I'm honest, I think in the five weeks that I was in the jungle, in the trees, as we call it, my directing staff only spoke to me about four times. And oh, that wow. was Billingham, you are leading the patrol. You're going from A to B to da, 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 Whatever it is, that was it. And so I never knew. There's no, and and everything you do or you feel you're doing wrong, is amplified in your head because you think, did he see that? God, I'm going mm-hmm. to judged on this. You know, right? It's crazy, isn't it? And and it really is. And I remember Jack when I flew out of the jungle. Probably like you, you'll obviously no, know exactly what I'm talking about. At the end of those five weeks, I looked like a prisoner of war. i yeah. lost two stone not that I had mm-hmm. a lot to lose anyway my uh uniform which rotted basically because of the ammonia which was stank a piss every day because that's what it smelled yeah. like after a period of time I remember sitting on the skids of a, a scout helicopter bring me out and I was sat on the skids flying out and I was so exhausted I thought you know what I don't even fucking care if I pass or fail now I ain't going back in there not <laughs> do it again and by the time I landed at the uh the you know the out Side of the jungle of the FMB, my uniform—you could literally crunch it, and it just because it just rotted. It was just dropping off me. It was ridiculous. We looked like oh, Nelson victims. Uh, and, you know, and I, I can't grow a beard—not like you. <laughs> I had this pathetic little goatee—I literally looked like a freaking, you know, about to die.
0: And, yeah. and
1: that's how I felt. And I thought, you know, I don't care. I give him my best, but I ain't going back in there again to do this. <laughs> no oh, care.
0: incredible! Yeah. I mean, and not only all that, like everything wants to kill you in there. Exactly. It seems like not only the, uh, the animals, but just uh, minor cuts and infections and all that sort of thing. I mean, that's a, that's an unforgiving environment. That is for sure.
1: And again, I felt it, I felt, because it was different when I was doing it with the parish origin, because we're all buddies and we're all, mm-hmm. we push yourself to whenever you where how, how far you want to go here, you just go and you have to keep going. You, you know, and like you say, people don't realize, I remember someone saying to me before I went there, just don't worry about it you will get at least 10, 12 hours sleep because when it's dark, you don't really operate in the dark of the, you know, security around the base sort of thing or in in your jungle basher area. But you've got to clean all your cuts out. So by the time you've cleaned all your cuts out, you've done any patrol reports you've got to do. You know, you're looking probably, if you're lucky, five hours sleep. Then you're lying there. There's things crawling all over you, the noise. And one of the biggest killers in the jungle that people never realise is deadfall. Those trees come down. Jeez, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had a few selections where we've had people, I think we've had a couple of people killed and we've had a lot of people injured. When that thing comes down, so there's so many other dangers that no one ever realizes. And then at this time, it it becomes, it's all very real. And it's over to you now. You know, when I did the jungle with my other instructors, I was still a young kid. So I was being led by people, people with experiences, I believe. Now you're leading. There's no sheep now, you're shepherds. You are yeah. all leaders and you're all in charge. So it was it was tough and I wasn't ready for it. So I went with a full sense of security and, wow, was I. <laughs> I thought, but that is selection. So, Love it. yes, yeah. you know, British forces, special forces selection is the jungle, not the old okay. and not thereafter. You, you can screw up, of course, on both of them yeah. and all of them. But right. the selection process is the jungle. And that's also the men from the not so men if yep. I'm honest.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I get it. And then how long do you have between each of those phases? Do you get to clean up for a bit or are you right into that next phase
1: in days? You're more or less right into So you finish the the mountains, you get a weekend off because fucking you know, hell, your knees are all swollen up your back. You, you screw mm. up to a degree. And then you do a week and a half or so of pre-jungle deployment. And, you know, A little bit tighter on your navigation, a few little patrolling skills that are relevant to being in the jungle. So A lot of range work shooting Because you're, you're firing live right next to each other And it's, as you know, really tight in the jungle you really got to have your yep. shit together So you do a lot of that For about a week and a half So really it's not a lot of time And then you finish that and bang Then you're on a flight You're out to Brunei You're off um, What's that next phase then? It, that, that's, sorry, into the jungle phase So you're off the hills You get a small yep. period Then into the. Then you come out of the jungle Then you've got a long weekend Two, three days And then bang You're on to escape and evasion Oh, wow. Learning how to survive. You get you get a week or so of lectures, you know, learning about fauna, 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 all the different types of things. You can eat, you can't eat, how to do traps, how to evade. Then you do all the okay. techniques, all that sort of stuff. And then, bang, you're captured, beating around a little bit, and you're off. You're oh, ready. yeah.
0: And is that in the UK? Is that next phase in the UK?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. it's normally, it's it, it, it can be anywhere around the UK. We did, okay. they did one in the States one year because oh, nice. we had foot and mouth over in the UK and we came across to, well, I can't remember it might have been around the Bragg area or something like that we were yeah. doing it there but most of the times in the UK it's even in the Scottish mountains or the Welsh mountains or somewhere got it Beautiful on a postcard, but not fucking beautiful when you're on the run.
0: <laughs> not when you're doing that. Not on the yeah, we, call it, yeah. we call ours camp slappy when yeah. you get captured and you go there. And, oh, my oh, gosh, yeah. I remember I got slapped so hard by a mountain of a person. But, uh, yeah, good character building, I think they call it. But uh, <laughs> then from there, it goes. you go into the the counterterrorist, the CQC, CQB type yeah. thing after that. Is that uh, the next yeah. uh, and final phase before you go to your squadron?
1: Yeah, you do. You so. I mean, by the end of Escape and Evasion, that's when you do the resistance or interrogation mm-hmm. or that to be honest, that really is the last chance for you to fail. You know, mm-hmm. that's where you're still being really, really tested. And then once you're through there, there's normally I think there's 283 started. I think we finished with seven again, that lucky number for me, I guess. Seven of us get to that final bit, and then it's just sort of counter-terrorist training, you know, the repelling, building repelling, um. Explosive entry, Mm -hmm. closer CQB, CQB, hostage rescue, did it. You get an insight to that. So you did two weeks or so of that. And then at the end of that, you then get badged. And it's no real military ceremony at all. It's whoever's left to go, okay, Billingham, you're going to Discoordination, buried off you go. There's no well done. That's (laughs) it. And (laughs) you go. And that, that was it. And that was the end of the selection process.
0: That's incredible. And what, what was the the hardest part? Was it the jungle or was there something specific in the, in the jungle? If you had to look back and think of uh, the hardest, either, uh, either part, either mentally, physically, um, mentally, what, what uh, part of that training process was the hardest one? And what lessons did you draw from that as you went into your squadron?
1: I I think, um, yeah, the jungle was definitely the hardest. Uh, The escape and evasion, a lot of people struggled with escape and evasion and doing interrogation to me. I wouldn't say I struggled with it. I didn't fucking enjoy it. And I just saw it as, I didn't see it as being real. You know, when you're in captivity, because I knew I wasn't going to die because it's a training exercise. I knew it was uncomfortable, you know, doing stress positions and being L for so long. And it was really uncomfortable. I can see why people fail it, but I just thought, it's just about, you know, digging deep, gritting your teeth and just kept saying to myself, it's a passage in time. It will be over at some point and I ain't going to die. It's as simple as yeah. that. But I think yeah. the biggest thing was the jungle, you know, I look back at the jungle and I think, you know, that was so mentally demanding and I wasn't expecting it, you know, being on top of your shit, being able to navigate from the moment you step off that helicopter to the moment you step back on it five weeks later, you have to count every single pace because it's all about bearing the pace and you get lost with your patrol, you could go missing for weeks and, you know, and then you failed anyway, but it's, yeah. and it's real. So yeah, the jungle was the, the biggest, the hardest phase. So when I, you know, but when I joined the squadron, I was like, I got through selection. I thought, what do I offer? These are all hmm. experienced guys i have been operations all over the globe. You don't even know what they've been doing. And I was just feeling, just like joining the army for the first time. What do I have to offer? Slightly different. It wasn't the same sort of pressure. It was like, or was it? Maybe it was. I was like looking at these older, wild guys, and everybody's so friendly, you know, and welcome, oh, wow. welcomed you in straight away. There's no initiation like when you first joined the army. These are all the older guys. And I remember looking around the squadron thinking, wow, this was not what I expected. Because if, like you guys, you know, people go, oh, yeah, think of SEAL Team Six, think of Delta, think of SAS, think of Special Forces. And everybody thinks six foot six, fucking V shape. Yeah. You know, and I remember getting to the squadron thinking, oh, these guys are gonna be and they weren't, they were little guys with pop bellies, bald heads, and I was like, that's what it is.
0: <laughs> Yeah. All was shapes not... and sizes as well, is yeah. my takeaway.
1: Yeah. 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 But put a put a rocket on the back mate, and you won't catch him or give him a, a yep. nice task to do in the sharpness and it and that's and then I realized the beauty of the special forces world. It's it's not about image. It's about what's in your mind and going that little bit further and who you really are, you know? Yeah. I was in a room or a squadron full of people who were special people in different ways, you know? And I remember a yeah. big fat guy one day, as he looked to me, he was like, hey, fancy going for a run? I like, yeah, I'll kick your ass, mate, no problem. Fucking hell, I don't think I, I only saw the souls the souls of his soul. a <laughs> He came. I was like, where did that come from? Yeah, amazing people. Our world is different, isn't it? And it's, you know, when people go, oh yeah, special, there's something special about it. And I thought, we're not special, but actually we are in many ways. We think differently, we think differently, we act differently. And, you know, it's, it's a unique world. And my first initiation into the squad and looking around, it was exactly that. I was like, wow, who are these people? What are they?
0: Yeah. No, we had all shapes and sizes. I remember some guys up night, all night drinking, hadn't even slept. They'd get back, and we'd go for a morning PT early on, and they'd uh, put out their cigarette, essentially, to do the PT, and then go on these runs, and they still crush you. It It was incredible, just that, you know, that mental fortitude. These guys were just. Tough, and you're stepping into this squadron with uh, veterans of the, the Falklands War. You're uh, with maybe some Princess Gate guys, um, Northern yeah. Ireland, uh, maybe Oman, even like these guys that had done these things in special operations for, and were the inheritors of uh, of such a a, a legacy. Of uh, special operations knowledge, wisdom, um, Mm -hmm. and now you're you're a part of that, um, which is which is absolutely uh, incredible. And at this point, you get to now jump into some of the things that uh, were a little little more fun. Uh, That driving, uh, that was one of the most fun things that I've ever done in the in the SEAL teams was the evasive driving courses. Um, But that you're doing the the sniper stuff, you're getting to do a whole uh, slew of things now. Uh, or a whole new world maybe opens up. Is that is that right?
1: Absolutely, mate. It, it was just that, you know. So I turn up and like I say, you're you, you sort of welcome straight away and no one's really testing you. They expect you to have an input to anything that's going on. And, and like you just said there, you know, these guys have been all over the place. There was even guys from Princess Gate, because my squadron did Princess Gate, he squadron. And there's these guys who'd been on the, the Iranian embassy, did all this. And You know, so I was kind of a bit overwhelmed thinking, wow, but they didn't give a shit about just a job, you know, let's move on. But then, yeah, then this new world opens up, you know, one minute you're doing your your, your sort of uh, trauma life support medical course, whatever it is, 10 weeks. Then the next thing I'm I'm in the Royal London Hospital acting as a doctor, literally flying down the middle of London High Street, uh, Oxford Street, running down the road and saving people's lives just to get my qualification then back to the squadron then we'd be off to some foreign country somewhere for two or three weeks to apprehend or hostage release or whatever we're doing then you're back in Aeroford again and then then I'm at the O'Mlacy Lacey College learning how to use a chainsaw and and I'm like hey, where does this fit in and doing all these crazy things which you just wouldn't expect you know then I'm doing a language course then I'm doing a photographer course then I'm do- 'Cause it fits into somewhere in a picture of somewhere we're gonna be operating to mm-hmm. have the knowledge and to be able to do these things. So it was it was just unbelievable, you know. It was a new world, this absolute new world. And I think for over twelve months I probably never even put a uniform on. I was working <laughs> in the cover and doing shit and was like, Fucking hell, this is crazy, but amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was an absolute new world. I love
0: it. I love it. And then the, uh, when did you, at what point did you start doing the sniper stuff and where's your, where's your guys at sniper school? Is it uh, specific to SAS or did you, you, had you already done some things, uh, with the parachute regiment before then, or how did that work?
1: No, I didn't do any sniper stuff with the parachute regiment. I, the first time I got into, we have our own sniper school within the SAS sort of unit, but what we do, one of the sort of, I wouldn't say equal, but a real good course is run by our, our Marines, our normal units. Mm-hmm. So we we you normally do the in-house one. We do a counter-terrorist sniper course. We do the conventional warfare sniper course, you know, and then somewhere down the line, if you get time, you go and do their course, the Marine course. So someone from an outside unit can look at you and also they have different ideas. So you you get the, mm. the best of everything. So, yeah, it was quite, kind of the, really, within the first sort of year and a half of being in the squadron, then I became a sniper, counter-terrorist sniper initially.
0: Yeah. So when were you, what were you using, um, back then? What, uh, well, what rifle yeah, scopes have set up
1: for the counter sniper stuff uh, on the, on the counter-terrorist team, I was using a Barrett believe okay. or not, for the anti aircraft wow. stuff. Yeah. Nice.
0: Nice. Did you have any of that, uh, H and K stuff back then? The, uh, yeah. uh, what do they call their, their sniper weapon system? That was kind of in the, uh, the late eighties, early nineties.
1: Um, the, we had the G3, we had the, um, okay. yeah. So it was all, it was all pretty sort of standard basic stuff, but, but good stuff, you know, 7.62 stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. And then, uh, is your, is your driving school in house or did you go to some civilian driving schools as well?
1: No, the driving school is not in house. We have our own, yeah, we do. We have our own sort of play area to do it, but when you're doing the course, it's run by the police, believe it or not, by the Mm -hmm. civilian police. So we went to a place called Bridge End and you do all the stuff. It's about five weeks, I think, of, you know, J-turns, Ambray turns or pit stops or all that sort of stuff and ramming, yeah. And then you do, straight off the back of that, you do a week of sort of what they call fast driving, running with the sort of um, the the Royal Police sort of teams that do all the security stuff for the Queen and all that. So you're doing all the fast driving, blue moves. So that's at the back of smashing everything up and ramming everything you then yeah. go to, you know speeding around the streets of london around awesome. the with, the, <laughs> with with the bike, with the bikes doing the solos alongside doing all that sort of stuff yeah
0: oh that's amazing. it's amazing and great. then how long are you uh, yeah it's such that's so much fun uh and then how long are you uh, are you in the sas how long do you do you stay there
1: you, you can basically as a, as a normal soldier which is what i was i wasn't an officer um you can i, I did i always say 17 years but i actually did about 24 years in the SAS because I went from full-time sort of door kicker to squad and sergeant major and then after sort of leaving I then became LDet, which is part-time so I was okay. attached to the regiment still going back into camp every now and again not not really involved in operations because I didn't want to be other than you know verbally or sort of helping out there and then but I didn't actually deploy again after that so yeah about 24 years altogether
0: Oh my gosh. So when, so when do you leave? What, what year do you transition out and why do you, why do you decide to, to move yeah. on?
1: Officially two fifteen. I, oh, wow. I stepped out before then about 2007, eight. Yeah. The end of 2007, I stepped out, but then became, as I, as I said, LDAT, which is the reserve side of it. So still part of it, officially still in the unit. Yeah. So. So you're doing was,
0: Iraq, you're doing Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're doing all those deployments yeah. and, and where were you on September 11th? And, where did, and 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 right away, did you know, all right, we're yeah. going to be involved in
1: this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember in, in, on that very day, we just landed in Northern Ireland. We had a, a, a situation going on in Northern Ireland. We got deployed quickly. And I remember it in the ground. And when we got picked up to go off to these jobs, people going, oh, have you seen what's happening in the States? And we're like, no, what's happening in the States? And the first plane had just gone into the towers. And, and so this the, one of our guys is telling us about uh, they thought it was a mistake initially, didn't they? The, oh yeah, some some someone's flew into the into one of the twin towers in New York. Went, you know. So we then get back into the operation base and it's almost live on TV. The second one happens, we are like, what the fuck? And I think everybody just looked at each other and went, that ain't no mistake. Stand by. The world's about to change. And it did it almost the day after, if you're honest, you know, we all got conscious sort of high readiness, be ready, this is what's going on. And then I think, you know, without saying anything too, what I probably shouldn't be saying is we kind of ex- expected something. We weren't expecting that. Same as the London bombings, you know, we weren't caught with our pants down, to be honest, but we weren't really ready for what happened. We were ready for something else and not to that scale. So everybody was like, here we go. This is wow. how the fucking tempo is going to step up. And it did, yep. of course. Yep. So we ended up in the How long was
0: it till you were in Afghanistan then after after that?
1: Um, probably weeks. Oh, wow. We'd already, we'd already been doing some stuff there anyway. Wow. Then it, it kind of changed roles. So then we're in in and out of Afghanistan and, and then into Iraq, of course.
0: Yeah.
1: All the little place after that, Libya and Syria. Yeah, amazing. It was, all, yeah, it was all bits and pieces, all unfolding, and, and then obviously the Iraq thing all kicked off full time after that. So
0: amazing, God, we did. Yeah, I was next to you guys uh, in Baghdad in two thousand six. I was working for our, um, well, the CIA oh, at was, the time. I was,
1: I was actually the sergeant major out then. Yeah. Oh, really? Nice. You know
0: the houses that were set up along yeah, the river yeah. there. So yeah. I was in the agency house. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah,
1: well, yeah. Was, they they were Saddam's daughter's houses, weren't they?
0: Yeah, I think so. everybody was like a Saddam house or a Saddam yeah. son house or a comp. I mean, that, oh my goodness, that was crazy. But I love that comp. I mean, that That's was such brilliant. a, when I look back, I had, that, that was such a crazy time to be doing those missions there. And yeah. uh, of course, we're, at, we're specifically targeting Zarkawi at that at that point. And they oh, eventually, that was our, eventually we, got him. That was our, What's that? That
1: was our job as well. Yeah.
0: We. Yeah. Everybody along that river was focused on that. And uh, yeah. they got him after I after I deployed home. Um, that, uh, that summer, but, um, oh yeah, God. I think it was you guys. Then it was, uh, it was, we were there and then Delta was there. I mean, it was such an amazing place. The helicopters are right out oh, there, great. uh, working out, had that range, uh, going out every so night. On
1: the far right hand side, wasn't
0: it? Yep. Yeah. It was so great running around that thing. I mean, I just, yeah. gosh, I got in the best shape of my life. Cause I was the only SEAL, only U S military attached to that unit. Uh, and for anybody in the military who has done something like that, been the only military person attached to, uh, yeah. something like that. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah. cause for me, I was deconflicting battle space, uh, as we went out there and, uh, got to, that was really. That was it. I didn't have it. I wasn't in charge of that whole thing, so it was it was great. I could just go out and kick those doors and and learned a ton. And everybody that was there, uh, from you guys to the Delta guys to the agency guys, were so great to me, and and it was so interesting. Uh, it actually formed the basis for my second novel called True Believer, uh, which is fiction, but uh, but it was inspired by events that uh, that happened during during that time frame. Oh, I've
1: got to get your books, man. I've got to read it
0: because. Oh man, I'll send them to you. I'll send yeah, them to you been, for we've sure. Been,
1: we've been chewing the same shit for sure. I mean, you would have been there at the same time. Amazing. I mean, I think next to us was, I think it was the Rangers and then TF Brown. No, then Delta, then TF Brown. And you guys are, I think you you guys are next to the range, right?
0: We had two. We, I think we had Delta at the far, I can't really, I, 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 about, my, it's been a little bit of time, but I think Delta was right there and then it was us and we had the two houses because we had some indigenous uh, people that were working with us. So we had uh, the two houses there, um, but it was, it was interesting. Got some great shape too, because I wasn't doing oh, yes. all the other stuff. I got to work out during the day and then head out at night. It was amazing. Got in the best shape of my life during that time frame. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was amazing. I had such great. It was, it was,
1: uh, an unbelievable time, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, that was crazy. I, crazy I, I don't ever
1: see that, no one will ever see that again. It, yeah, it was maybe. amazing times, you know. You look back at it and you think, like, you know. We're almost nocturnal. Every single night we're yeah. out doing what we were doing. In the day, exactly in the day, people were up and just... Running around that that down that, <laughs> that, that road at the back by all the,
0: yep. the the legs at the back, whatever it was, so great
1: down past yep. Uday's, um freaking palace all the way down. Oh. To, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it was amazing. What an incredible road. experience! Oh, yeah. Amazing. And then, uh, then, when do you decide to to move on? When do you make that decision to to head on out? I mean, you've been in for a while at at this, at that point yeah. when you decide to finally get out. Um, what was the, what was, uh, the reason so, for moving so, on and how did that transition go?
1: Well, I, I went from, you know, I, I, I ended over the squadron and all those fun days of the Baghdad, Afghanistan, and all the other places, you know, I don't really talk about. And then I, I got posted. I, I got a draft out to Brunei as the jungle warfare, warfare instructor, Sergeant Major, the RSM at uh, Brunei. Which is an mm. international uh, school there, you know, for tracking and jungle warfare. And I loved it. And while I was out there, you know, I was starting to think, I'm starting to get to the end of my I was starting to feel I'd done enough. It was ready to leave. And then I got posted back to London and every everyone was telling me how great this job's gonna be in London, you know. And, and again, it was the RSM's job. It was it's a part-time unit that is supported by the special forces, you know, it mm. helps them keep them with their letters on there, help, and keep them funded and all this stuff. And they're great guys, they're civilians, but they do do a little bit of operational stuff. And everyone was telling me how great this job's going to be because you're in the city and you're going to do all this. And I came back and I'll be honest, Jack, it was the most miserable time of my life. We weren't really back in around proper operators. Mm-hmm. It was hard to adjust. I started to have a little bit of personality clashes with people because, you know, in our world, when you want something doing, it's you don't have to fucking keep jumping through hoops, you get shit done. All of a sudden, I'd gone back to jumping through hoops just to get the simplest, and I just—I I couldn't tolerate it, and I just thought, I'm going to end up punching some fucker and losing <laughs> <laughs> And that's how we got to. I literally got to that point, and I went, i got to get out of here. And then I got offered a job to do security, bodyguarding, and I thought, I'll have a look at it. I'll take a little break for a few weeks, because I was, I was old a few weeks, and while I was out there, I thought, you know what? It is time for me to hang up my fucking boots now, and... Although, like I say, when I said I didn't hang my boots completely. I, I started working outside of the unit, outside of the military and done, finished. But I was still part-time, so every now and again, I'd go in and do a little exercise and a few weeks of training with the regiment and do this. And, and I had an opportunity to d- deploy overseas again, but it wasn't, you know, this sort of tier one type of role. It was more of a mm-hmm. back role, intelligence gathering. I didn't want to do that. So I didn't do it. I stayed, stayed within the unit, but I didn't deploy. I just doing civilian work for a couple of months, then go back do a week, keep okay. my head, and go back. And it went like that to 2015, basically.
0: It's, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, I mean, you're, I hope someone makes a movie of of your life one day because uh, mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating, it's inspiring. Um, and and how long did you do the executive protection bodyguarding? Thing for I mean you well, you are doing that for some fairly high profile people so it wasn't the yeah. you know the executive that no one knows but is targeted by someone specific and you know that sort of thing it's someone who's out there well known travel schedules are, are known in many cases uh, paparazzi is out there uh, so there's there's so much more it seems. Uh, to deal with publicly when you're dealing with some of the people and personalities that uh, that you you dealt with and protected, um, how was that that experience, and how long did you do it?
1: I, I did it for, I mean, really, I started doing it with, in that transition I just spoke about where I was in elder, so I would do a little bit. I was I was doing it from then really, so I was doing it for about ten years on and off really, and full time when I wow. went full time with the family. I went with Brandi for about. 17 months, I think, where I was basically okay. living there every day and it was just full on. And then I sort of stepped back from that. Then I did a couple of months with like, um, um, what else did I do? Michael Caine, Tom Cruise, yeah. Russell Crowe. So they were more sporadic part-time bits. Okay. But I think the, whole, the overall timeline from start to finish of bodyguarding was really about 15 years, maybe 12, oh, wow. years. yeah it, it, yeah. So, cause I was doing it like part-time while I was in the regiment, you know, my days on my leave and things like that. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a fair chunk of time that I was doing it, but full on, you know, full-time family bodyguard was probably 17 months with Brad and Angeline. Oh, wow. And,
0: and you did international stuff with them. You did that. Yeah, uh, oh, They're going, they yeah, going to yeah, Africa. They're doing some, some interesting. And, it,
1: and the transition was, it, it was weird because, you know, coming from our lifestyle of, you know, Below the parapet, never knowing who telling people who you are and what you're doing. I stepped out and all of a sudden, freaking oh, you're in every magazine. You can't avoid it. I needed a job, and that was my job, security. So that was the honest sort of thing to get your head around being in the trying to stay at the fa- fucking cameras, but you couldn't try and deny yeah. who you were. Because everybody wants to know who's this new guy running around with Brand Angie and right. the newspapers, the magazine, everybody would speculate, oh he's CIA, he's fucking MI5, he's SAS, he's SPS, he's and, you know, you're kind of trying to dodge who you really are. But in terms of the work, it was easy because, you know, not the world we've lived in, they're not they're being shot at now, but shot with a camera, not shot with a fucking mm. dusker or, a, you, know, mm. you know, dodging bullets, really. There's always a threat of somebody trying to attack them, or maybe, but it's very, very small. And with our knowledge and experience, you go, do you, do your sort of, you know, due diligence, do you, you sort of... Your intel checks through social media,s through con- connections we have. Your, it's very low, low key. So you it. more, it's a more about protecting an image, which is okay. different, different, different to us because yeah. you know we never really, we're never really there, and we don't have an image to protect hmm. the world we live. But now for these people, my job became giving these people a chance to have a life because they're forever being hounded, and and that was the, the main part of it. And making sure their image was protected and it was enjoyable you know there's no real threat you might get some idiot want to take a punch but that's easy to deal with or try and grab or you know it's fucking easy is it but there was no real threat but but it was hard work in terms of it was actually more planning now going on in, in this side of my work than there was even doing operations with the regiment Because it's every day, you know, you're planning everything from medical to clothing to travel to, and you couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't trust the drivers. You couldn't trust people. So you're doing it all yourself. you were making sure international travel was ready. We had all the documentation. We had the right fuel. We had the right aircraft. We had the right vehicles picking us up. Who was picking us up? Right phones, right? So there was a lot to it. And, you know, in our world, you're the overall chief, you're the overall boss, but you've got guys you can rely on. You take you take charge of the vehicles, you take charge of the ammunition, you take charge of the damage, you take charge of the medical. It's done for you, isn't it? Now it was me with people mm. I didn't really know and I didn't really trust. And you couldn't. So I had to make sure the vehicles were fueled up, they're ready to go. I couldn't trust telling them where we're going to go because all of a sudden I'd tell them and then there's all Apparazzi. the you like, yeah. so you can't, can't constantly throwing in deceptions. And I would I'd tell them we're going here. Next morning, they jump in the car and go, no, we're going to so-and-so. And And you could just see their face like, what? You said we got just turn the car around. We're going that way. You know, so you were dealing with all that. So it was taking up a lot of time. So when your clients, whether it's Brandon Andrew, whether it's Tom Cruise, it doesn't matter. They work hard. They finish. They do 14, 16, 18 hours a day. So when they finish, I've still got an hour's work on top of that to go and do the reconnaissance myself because I couldn't trust no one else to do it. And check the people who you've got as outside security and not asleep they're doing the job and yeah. not right. the phone, so they're not fucking around and yeah. so it was hard work it was enjoyable it was great the clients were very respectful and and, and it worked both ways we had a real good relationship everybody I worked with it, it was hard work you know not in the terms of what we know as
0: it's a different work, but I understand exactly what you're saying. And and even for them, when you're protecting someone who's working so hard, that, that's my main takeaway or one of my main takeaways from being on the set. They're turning my first book into a series for Amazon Prime right now, starring Chris mm-hmm. Pratt. So I'm on the set and I am. Just, I hadn't really thought about it too much ahead of time, but people at every level of the production are working so hard at their individual jobs. And you're right, it's 12, day, 12 hours, but then they can extend for 14, 18. These guys are working. Yeah hard and then they're coming back the next day and yeah maybe there's a weekend or maybe they go into the weekend all depending on production schedules and and all sorts of other factors that play there but uh but they're working hard so uh then and you're there with them and i'm just there on set watching and mm-hmm. uh and at the end of the day i've been exhausted and i'm just sitting there watching um so so i understand what you're saying there but what uh, do you think being there uh, on those sets with those uh um uh, with those actors and did that kind of open your aperture a little bit to uh, becoming more comfortable uh, in front of the camera that maybe led to, were you in, you did the, the gunman. I think you were in that movie in front of the camera then at that, at that point. So now you're the guy uh, uh, that's, that's on film. Uh, and then later into uh, uh, SAS, who dares wins and, and all that sort of thing. Was that the, was that the starting point for some of that?
1: I thought, yeah, I guess it was really, but um, I don't know. We're just natural type of people, you know, you, because, you you do undercover work, you've got to be somebody else, you've got to play a part. So that's acting really, isn't it? So I guess we're kind of one step ahead of the curve anyway. You, you kind of naturally fall into that place. And when I did The Gunman, um, I, I just, I didn't like it. It, it just, ah. it was repeating something, you know, film from this side, film for that side. Right. The, and we we like these, I just fucking get on with it. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you, you kind of, I enjoyed it. I, was a kind of natural area. I didn't feel comfortable really, but it kind of went naturally. But I guess it's like I just alluded to, it's the lifestyle we've lived and what we do. And, you know, so I did that. And then I got offered to do a couple of programs and I turned it down. But prior to that, which not many people know, I I did a, while I was with Brad and Angie, actually, I I did a a program called Unbreakable, which was eight people, um, six guys, two women who really fit athletes, ex-boxers, ex-footballers, ex it real fit. And the, the idea of the program was, it was called Unbreakable, and they're unbreakable. No matter what you throw at them, push them, you'll never break them. And I was like, what? And they asked me to take these people to the jungle. They're going to take them to the jungle. I was going to be the expert for the jungle. Then they're going to take them to the desert. They're going to get some guy to take them to the desert. Then they're going to take them to Norway in the, in the Arctic, and et cetera, et cetera. That was the idea of the program. Mm. So I went along, eventually doing it, which I didn't want to do. But I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And like I told the producers, "I hang on a minute." I said, "We're going to the jungle," and they went, "Yep." I said, "We'll break these in," like in an hour. He went, "No, no, no. You don't understand." I went, "I I do understand. You don't understand." So we're having this argument. Anyway, long story short, we end up in the jungle. Forty minutes after starting, they're nearly all broke. broke Wow! Because they're not acclimatizing. Yeah. That was my first introduction to. Being in front of a camera and that really put me off then because I thought Mm. these people don't listen to somebody who's kind of the expert in this field and it did really put me off because I thought we could end up killing somebody here and I don't you know you don't want to be doing that so I did that program we toned it all down we changed it we made it work and I left it and then the next time was the gunman you know Sean Pennington along as as a friend and he goes will you do this will you do that and it was fun but it was like six hours of dropping my pants and showing my ass. (laughs) And he was like, this is too repetitive. (laughs) So it was good fun. And I I didn't want to do it again. I probably would do it again, if I'm honest. And then after that was um, S.A.S. who does wins. And initially I said, no, I didn't do the first series because I didn't really know what it was about. And you know, you know, I do something about the seals. You're like, like, who's doing it? You're going to say, you got to be you know you don't want to be exactly asked to some nonsense and there'd already been a few programs that were nonsense and stupid mm-hmm. and so as soon as it came up SAS I went no I'm not interested but the right. first series went out I, I, I then got asked again come on show please we really want you to do it. I looked at the show they showed it me and I kind of liked it because it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't about us SAS guys, SS, SF guys, we we're great, we've done this, we've mm-hmm. it wasn't it was about the people. Yeah. Their backstories and you, like me, we were there as the experts to give authenticity. Why, why are they doing aggressive things? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And we explain. you know, the idea of punching each other in the face and it is it's to replicate going into combat, getting your head up and thinking straight and, and overcoming, you know, aggression with aggression, but staying in control. So that was our job. And I thought, you know what? I enjoy this. I like this. I've got something to offer. So from there, I decided, yeah, I'm going to do it, I'll, I'll do, and uh, I've enjoyed it. And again, it was, I was joining three other ex-military guys, and it was just mm-hmm. like being back in,
0: yeah, you know, going a up a bit, reunion
1: yeah had the banter taking the piss out of each other and having a good crack and just getting yeah. and no rehearsals, there's no script. It was just bang, here we go and it was it was fun and it is and fun. it's a great
0: show. it's a very popular show, especially it's uh, with UK Australia and uh, yeah. I mean it's a fan- you guys do a fantastic. Job. And you're right. There was there's a lot of shows that were kind of similar here and there. But then this one broke out because I think it is so well done. Uh and and you guys on the show are such solid people. And it, it there's something different about it. And that's why it's been so successful, I think.
1: It's I mean, I think it's I don't actually think it's classed as a reality TV, although it kind of is. It's it's called it's under the title in the UK it's factual TV. Okay. It, it's it is reality TV, but The reason it works, I think, is because it's authentic in terms of we don't know nothing about the the students. We're not allowed to until day one when we get them in front of us. So those mirror rooms, there's nothing staged. We don't know anything about the person sat in front of us. So when the the stories are coming out, we're trying to find out who they are and their story comes out, the expressions you see and and get from us is real. You know, because there's been times I've gone at somebody because he seems aggressive and he's this. All of a sudden, he'll come out with one of the saddest stories you can ever hear. His wife died, or and you're like, Gee, I wasn't expecting that. And so, it's all very real, and it is so. And the only thing the only rehearsals we do are you know, the sort of tasks the absent, the the repelling, the backfall, the the vehicle smash, whatever it is. We will always rehearse that because we obviously we we don't want to kill anybody. (laughs) and that is the only thing that is that's the only real source to it there's no if you make a mistake you say the wrong thing that's it it goes it's 24 hours a day filming and then they edit everything they want but there's no okay can we just say that again can we just do that there's none of that it's just bang it's real it's like it's just like you and I being on a a task a course training people it is what it is you say you do what you think you need to do at the time and and that is the beauty of it it really is and no one else is really doing has been doing yep. it you know and it it did it, it was kind of a test thing to start with. by the second series it became the number one series Bam, bam, bang, bang and it's it's done crazy yeah and, and the audience of believe it or not the audience male female to from sort of young kids to 60 70 80 old people, people loving it
0: yep no it's inspiring and you guys are inspiring and you guys all do a fantastic job with it uh, so what, at what point along the way do you write the, uh, the first book or when does that, when do you start thinking about, Hey, I want to share some of these, these yeah. lessons, these life experiences with, with people. Um, and I love it. I especially, you know, not just for. For uh, adults, but I think those kind of kind of books, particularly the one like like you've written their, your first one, um, it, they're well, so inspiring. And for people out there that have so many distractions, particularly kids from, say, sixth grade up through our, our high school into co- college, there's so many other distractions out there that aren't healthy uh, for them to get a book like yours and, uh, and go into that and hear your story, read your story. Uh, I mean, I think it's inspiring a lot of people to, to follow in your footsteps, uh, into the military. So yeah. uh, when, when do you start thinking about, uh, doing that?
1: Well, I mean, probably like yourself, you know, after I left the military, a lot of friends would go, man, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And and we find it uncomfortable because oh, what lot people are going to think about us what, what should I say? What should I not say? So there was that. So I got asked for a long time to do, and I didn't want to do it. Then, I thought about writing my memoirs anyway for family, for my wife, for my children, and all that sort of stuff, just so, you know, anything ever happens, you, people go, oh, I didn't realise this, I didn't realise that, you know. Yeah. And then after my father died, um, my my, my father's was pretty old-fashioned, a wonderful guy, but he never really told me, he knew what I did, he never asked me, so I never really told him. And then after he died, I found out he knew more or less everything, not everything, but he had paper clippings of new stuff oh. that I was related to, there was this, there was that. I thought, wow, I wish I'd have fucking sat down and told him the stories because I should. And I never got a chance to do it. And another time, you know, I'd be out drinking and you know, my children would be there listening to the stories and go, Hey, you never told us these stories. Why did you not? And then I thought, you know what? I'll I'll do it. So I wrote it, my my autobiography, but you know, I did hard way. It's yeah, called hard way, yeah. I didn't put any of the real operational military stuff. Well, I didn't put anything in there because I didn't feel I needed to. It's more a journey of a child that is fucking naughty, which I was, uh, goes rogue, gets back on track, goes rogue, gets back on track, and meets influential people, and they guide him to the right path. You know, and and like you say, people can relate to that in America, all around the world, because kids, this is what kids are like. You know, they'll go rogue unless somebody with influence, a role model, puts them right. So that was the idea of writing it, and again, it was it was kind of. Great to do it and remember all my childhood and all the lessons learned. And you know, I wasn't proud of some of the things I did, and but I thought it's important to tell it because somebody can learn from it. Yeah. Also, my family can go, Oh, yeah, I, you know, I didn't realize this bit about you and this like, and all that sort of stuff. So, that was a reason for doing it. You know, I'd been approaching and approaching, I didn't want to do it. And I just felt after my father died, and then you know, being um, asked by family members and, and the children how come you haven't told us about this because I heard somebody else talking about what i had done. I thought it's time to do it. And when I went through the process of it, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. No, I, I'm so glad you did that. Um, because I do think it's going to help a lot of, lot of people out there. And then you have a second one, uh, yeah. that, that, out now too. And Then that, that call to kill.
1: Yeah. And like yourself, it, it, it's, you know, it's fiction. It's, it's a novel. And, but it's, I'm pretty sure yours is based on your world of events and what you've done. And the beauty of that is, Jack, is it's authentic, isn't it? Because yep. you know what you're talking about. And there's so many people out there writing these things, which are great. I've got nothing against any of that, but it's far from fucking real and a bit wild. And it's great. That's great entertainment. But if you want to hear the real, how it would happen and feel part of it and go, me. and it's still heroic and it's still fun and crazy. I started writing novels and I thought it's... Based on stuff I've done, yeah. and places I've been, but changed names, place, directions. So, and I really enjoyed it, and I'm really enjoying it, mate. It's telling this story, and, and the, the main character in mind, one is Matt Mason, and of course, it's based on me. It's, and the rest of the characters are friends like you, yep. have, you know, <laughs> the fat guy who likes to not yep. can blow anything to <laughs> if you need him. So, it's, so, that's why I started doing it, and, and I'm really enjoying it. And I've got a ghostwriter who does, does you know, all the. the Proper literacy side of stuff, and we got a great rapport. So I'll tell the stories and all that sort of stuff, and we capture it between us, and it's and it's brilliant. And I'm really enjoying it. So I've built this character now, and it's just following my life's adventure and journey. Anyway, you know the next I've already halfway through the next book, which is the character leaving the military. If you've read the book, at the end of it, he basically gets kicked out of the military after all his time, really, and then becoming. Involved in conservation and what's really going on in the world in conservation today. And it, it's all current as well, you know, in the novel I've just finished. It, it's involves Trump uh, as he is in in the in power, not in power. It it talks about coronavirus. So it's all right up today. And even now, as we're writing, I'm writing the second one, the, the sequel to the one I've just done, it's based in Mozambique with what's going on, you know, with all the stuff the over the sort of ISIS stuff going on out there and so yeah but I'm enjoying it and again based on yeah what we know and authenticity and um
0: That's it. No, I think that's why mine resonated with Simon and Schuster, uh, because they see thousands of these things every year. And, uh, it's, and it, what I brought to mine, and I'm sure you brought to yours is the, uh, the feelings and emotions behind a lot of what, uh, what we did downrange. So I can take, Hey, what it was like to be a sniper in Ramadi at the height of the war. I don't have to interview somebody and say, Hey, what was it like? And then take my notes. And then of course that's going through any filters and biases and life experiences that I have. And then I take, that and apply it to a fictional narrative. So it's been like a game of secret where it's diluted, 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 maybe changed here and there and ends up in this narrative. Uh, I can, I just go direct. I remember what it was like to go in and set up in these buildings or do the job or whatever it was. And then boom, you know, it goes directly. And I think that that's why that uh, uh, a lot of people uh, that have had time in the military uh, who go on and write fiction, uh, why their novels resonate. And, uh, every so often on Instagram, when it's someone's birthday, um, Alex, Alex McDermott or you know, whoever it is, Ian Fleming, I talk about these writers and, uh, and I go back and look at their histories and I'm like, Oh my gosh, look what this guy did in world war two, or look at yep. this guy did in the intelligence services. I mean, Jean le Carré, like all these guys that had these touch points, uh, in the military and then took some of that experience and put it into these fictional narratives. So there's a, there's a history of, of doing that and of people doing that very, very successfully. So I'm glad you're doing it. I'm very glad to hear that you're doing a second one. So that's That is absolutely fantastic. And I've been on your your Instagram. You're doing these workouts that are are attached to characters in the novel uh, as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I've I've just done a week of um, because, you know, normally when your book goes out, you get a chance to go and do a a tour and sign books as people buy the books. We've not been able to do it because of the COVID thing and the restriction in travel. So I just did a fitness thing and just sort of introduced a character. and know the male and the females and, the, and and all that sort of stuff and yeah just to get it out there so people understand who it is and what it's all about and no, uh, i love
0: that idea that was i've never seen anybody do that before it was great and uh, of course i'm like oh man i gotta get out and work out look at this guy he's <laughs> out there crushing it all the time I'm like i've been typing away and i need to and i just got back from a, a sniper competition actually in uh, in oh. wyoming just across the border here and i got there and i'm looking around and i was like oh my gosh look how uh, Look how in shape everybody is. I need to get back after it here, and we d- did very well. I got paired up with uh, uh, Bullet Valentina, UFC fighter, uh, cool. and so we were a team together. So we ended up getting second, which was uh, was uh, was amazing. But oh my gosh, she put me in the dirt. She is in some great shape, and wow. uh, <laughs> I need to get back after it here soon. But uh, yeah, I no, no, love that. I love that yeah. idea.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that, though, Jack, because my wife Jules, uh, we just met, she's mm-hmm. just sitting there laughing. You know, I've been saying all this week. We just finished filming Australia, and at the end of the film, you, you, you're back in shape. You're quite fit because you, you know you know they're doing it. And since I've been back, all I've been doing is drinking and eating. And, <laughs> you know, I'm getting, and she she's been laughing about you know how we're going to detox and get back into shape again. And
0: yeah, well, the football soccer soccer game isn't going to help with that. Uh, <laughs> You know, this week I, I don't think that really lends itself All to uh, to to working out and good sleep and nutrition. It sounds like it's uh mm-hmm. it's beer and bar food, you know, attached right. to that. Um, but you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, I love talking to you. It's so fantastic. Hope we can meet up in person one day. Yeah. Um, so what's what's uh, ahead for you? I know you have a have a charity that you're in, you're involved with,
1: yeah. um,
0: oh. and are you doing another series of the, another season of the show? And I know you have the new the book uh, that you're working on right now. But what's the uh, what are you looking forward to in the future here?
1: We've, um, we've got another SASU As Wins UK version. about us. Um, we're about to do the recce for that in the next few weeks, and that'll probably get filmed around about September. We're not sure exactly in the world that's going to take place. It's outside of UK, I believe. Um, we've got another one for Australia. That's gone so well. We just finished filming in Australia, and they've already said they want to do another one towards the end of this year as well. So that's another series out in Australia. And in between that... I actually live in the states now. Me and, me and the wife, we live in uh, Lake Worth, Florida. So nice. we, we're gonna get back home and have a little bit of downtime and family time and Good. somewhere in between all this. And yeah, um, my wife, she she's got a for-profit organization in Haiti called Dume to our, which means two hands. And she also we got a charity called Rebuild Globally, which was born after the earthquake. Sort of that's where I met her while we're out there. And we built this charity. So basically, the charity we we put children through school. You know, street kids basically, and people with nothing through school, finish all the school and education. Then we we sort of put them through job training, and then she gives them a job at this at, at her factory. Do make, which is a fashion company, basically making sort of for all fashionable stuff. And yeah, so and people be, can
0: find that through your your website, right? And
1: yes. What, what's What's that website? Um, the d- d- uh, May.
0: I saw you look to the boss right uh, there.
1: Yeah, I'm looking. I always get it wrong. It's linked from yours. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So, so it's linked Dume. to yours, and that'll be in the, the show notes for this and everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so your Instagram Dume. will be on there.
1: Yeah. Dume, which is the for profit, and um, Rebuild Globally, which is a charity.
0: Amazing. No, I love that you're doing that. Yeah. my When you mentioned Mozambique earlier, my second novel, uh, my protagonist goes on a journey of really uh, well of redemption learning to live again finding that next mission in life finding that next next passion in life um and uh i went to mozambique put boots on the ground to do that research because in the first novel i'd been to iraq i'd been to afghanistan i've done these things and and uh but i hadn't been to mozambique and he needed to go somewhere go totally off the grid and uh cuz he thinks he's dying and but he but he ends up not obviously because there's more novels, but, uh, but he needs to go someplace and put those old skills to use in a positive way. So, uh, there's this poaching thing and anyway, he learns to live again. And then of course the agency uh-huh. comes in, grabs him and shoots him back into the world of international espionage and terrorism and all, all that sort of thing. But, um, but we mentioned Mozambique and gosh, I love it there. It was, uh, it was beautiful. I had a what great, uh, in ex- and, uh, the, the NASA, NASA game reserve. Yeah. Um, so went into Pemba and then took a small plane and landed in the middle of nowhere in Nyasa game reserve and, uh, just had a amazing experience out there talking to those professional hunters and those trackers and talking about poaching, talking about uh, illicit, tra- uh, illicit wildlife trade, talking about Chinese influence, both, uh, both legal and illegal. Yeah. Um, but just how uh, the politics of the region, all of that, it was amazing. They wanted to share the history of their country, the politics, everything. Um, it was interesting. So the next novel, I went to Kamchatka peninsula in Russia. And I thought, because I was going so fast, I thought, you know, everybody here is going to want to talk to me, just like the people in Mozambique wanted to talk to me and tell their story. And they were so open in Mozambique and got to Russia. No, no one. Because I think for most of Russian history, if someone was asking you pointed questions, the same type that you would ask if you're writing a a spy thriller, political thriller, well, you weren't long for this world. It was off to the gulag, off to the firing squad. So they (laughs) were very (laughs) tight lipped when I was doing research in Kamchatka Peninsula, Russia, just south of Siberia. But, uh, But yeah, Mozambique had a great, great experience there awesome. Man. I love doing that, that, uh, that on the that boots on the ground research. Um, and then you do some speaking too, right? That's, uh, that yeah. maybe not during, during the time of COVID, but, uh, you're out there. Uh, mm-hmm. and when you're out there doing that kind of, uh, those speaking engagements, um, and people can learn all about that on your, on your website as well. Um, what's your, what's your message? What, what are you passing along to, to your I'm audience?
1: Telling people like, you know, don't be afraid basically to set goals and fail but get up and go forward because no matter what you think, whether you reach your goals or you don't, you'll always be in a better place by trying and going forward, you know? And then as you go forward, other avenues open up, other opportunities. So it's about never giving up and just always going for your goal. And don't worry if you don't reach it, get up and go again.
0: Love it. Love it. And you know, uh, before, before I let you go, uh, someone from the UK sent me this, they reached out on, uh, I see, I'll show it to, there we go. So they, they reached out on, um on instagram and amazing so this is from world war ii and it was in their family and they wanted to send it to me and i said absolutely not don't send this to me um and but they insisted and they sent it and i said hey if you your kids anyone in your family ever wants this back um then it's i will send it directly back but it's amazing and uh yeah
1: that's the original commando knife
0: incredible and it has a there's something on the, on the handle here and I can't read it. So I'm going to get a, uh, a magnifying glass out here at, at some point and, you know, read yeah. exactly what it says here, but I can read what it says here on the leather on the sheath here. And it has a place here. It says, uh, made in, uh, Sheffield, England. So that's stamped right here on the, on the sheath. Oh. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I was amazed at how light it was, but for those listening or watching, um, this, uh, this blade has a, a history in, uh, uh, deep in the special operations community. So yeah. it was very, very cool no, 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 of them no, to send this, but amazing. Amazing.
1: Really awesome.
0: Yeah, man. Well, Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I sincerely oh, appreciate you. you taking the time yeah. and, uh, encourage everybody to follow you on Instagram. I love all the stuff that you post. It's so inspirational and, uh, and, and, and tracking down SAS who dares wins and getting the books. And I'm excited to, to keep following you and see where the, uh, where, what, what you do next.
1: And likewise, Jack, and, um, when we're over in the States, I'll let you know, let's definitely get together.
0: That would be amazing. We're let's definitely do it. Let's,
1: uh,
0: yeah, let's do it. Let's grab a drink for sure. That'd be, that'd be so much fun. I had, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do some working out between now and then. Cause I've been, I've I been following <laughs> your Instagram. You guys get after it out there. So I'm going to go for a run here right after this. You inspired me just by jumping on the, uh, the video conference call here.
1: Well, I'm going to go for a beer. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I wish I could join you, but we'll make that happen soon.
1: Yeah. Take care. Awesome. Man. Thanks. Thanks
0: so much. Take care. Today's gear highlight segment is brought to you by 10,000. Now 10,000 is an athletic apparel company. They make hands down the best training workout shorts that I've ever worn, and I've worn quite a few over my time both before the military, in the military, and today. I've been wearing their 7-inch tactical short, which is these ones right here, and their inter- interval shorts that I'm wearing. Right now. But uh, these things are incredible. Uh, And I've been putting on the pack, heading up into the mountain. I've been running. I've been doing throwing the kettlebells around. And uh, as I continue on to get back in shape here, this is my short of choice. I love it so much that I'm going to get all the other stuff that they have out there as well. You can find them 10,000.cc online and also Instagram, 10,000.cc there as well. But I'm going to looking forward to trying out their shirts and all the rest of the stuff they have going on there. And I wanted to read their brand ethos because it's, uh, uh, it's very close to what I think about each and every day. And uh, here it is. It says at the heart of 10,000 is a stoic dedication to continuous improvement every day, faster, every day, stronger, every day, better than yesterday and hashtag better than yesterday is their hashtag on Instagram, which I absolutely love because that's always the goal to do it better than we did yesterday, uh, to learn from what we did yesterday and do it better going forward, turn those lessons into wisdom. Uh, and that's what I try to do with the kids as well as pass some of that along to them. We don't believe in overnight success, miracle drugs, cure-alls, quick fixes, or shortcuts. We believe in works in progress. We believe in the value of our failures. We believe in dusting off and getting back up. We believe in grit, tenacity, and grinding. Yes, absolutely love that. Uh, These shorts, I just want to make sure I get this right. Uh, Ultralight Ripstop Fabric, Toughest Nails Waistband, permanent anti-odor treatment, no bounce pocket, medium compression, anti chafe liner, side slits, and four-way stretch for maximum range of motion. uh, Yeah. What all that means is that these are awesome shorts. 10,000 makes gear specific to other types of training from running to Olympic lifting to boxing. You can also find a short for all the ways you train. Pick up the short that is best for your training and then personalize it with custom liner and inseam options. So awesome. Definitely check them out online. Uh, They have free shipping and free returns and a lifetime guarantee. And I'm going to read this call to action because you can get 15% off your purchase if you remember this. So write it down. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code DANGERCLOSE15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Once again, that is 15 to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter Danger Close 15. Awesome. So I just got back from the Sig Hunter Games, the first ever Sig Hunter Games. They were out here in Wyoming. I was teamed up with Bullet Valentina, UFC champion, and she was absolutely Incredible! It was two days of traversing the mountains of Wyoming and uh, going through a long-range precision marksmanship course, essentially. And uh, we had a blast. Ended up second place, not too bad for an author. And uh, but got to meet some amazing people out there. So um, got back from that, and there was this very interesting package from Sitka Gear. Now, usually Sitka Gear comes in a uh, oh, look at that t-shirt but usually comes in a box that has awesome and has branded tape on it and all that sort of thing. So I've always been very impressed with how Sitka packages their stuff up and sends it out, but this was different. And I was, did not know this was coming. And look at that. Bam. So Sitka on the outside had no idea what this was. So open it up. And what do you think it was? Look how they do that. So, if you've seen how sometimes um, I send books out when a new novel hits, it comes in some pretty cool packaging. Well, uh, Sitco was one of the companies that I first noticed doing things like that. And uh, this one is no exception. They took it to the next level. And this is their new sleeping bag wearable gear. This is the Kelvin Aerolite 30 sleeping bag. And it is in here. And I'm going to test it out very soon. Of course, they have this as well. A little information about it in here. Awesome packaging. Absolutely incredible. And I am looking forward to trying this out. It's a wearable sleeping bag. And uh, if you are been following Sitka gear, you know that uh, they always go all out. So uh, super fired up. Uh, probably John Barclow out there sent this in my direction. So John Barklow, be sure to follow him on Instagram. As well, amazing lessons out there on uh, going into the backcountry from him. So uh, follow him, and thank you, Sitka, for sending this along. Check it. Check out more about it at SitkaGear.com, and I'll move this aside. Also, wanted to talk about these. So these are from the Boot Campaign, and the Boot Campaign. Uh, you can find them at BootCampaign.org. They Help veterans that are dealing with traumatic brain injury, dealing with post traumatic stress, dealing with that uh, physical and emotional trauma of the battlefield. So, uh, these are the Black Rifle Coffee Edition Ultimas, and you can find this on the Boot Campaign website. And 100% of the proceeds from these boots go to helping veterans that are having trouble uh, in the post military part of their life, specifically from traumatic brain injury and uh, post traumatic stress. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or on the Jack Carr YouTube channel. To find out more about Mark Billy Billingham, be sure to visit his website at markbillybillingham.com and that's M-A-R-K-B-I-L-L-Y-B-I-L-L-I-N-G-H-A-M.com or follow him on the social channels at Billingham 229 Bravo. So that is at E-I-L-L-I-N-G H-A-M 229 Bravo. And be sure to pick up both of his books, The Hard Way and the new one, Call to Kill. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA. Until the next time, stay strong out there. Keep fighting. And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell for these ones right here, they're just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver, but these guys right here, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So, uh, right here Granite's awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These just some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter twos. These are, I would wear these all day, every day, if I, if I could, but, uh, um, amazing boot, love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair. Uh, and then I just got a couple, new pairs. And right here, these are the Beartooth. I've one of these for a while. So super excited about trying out the Beartooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory so those are handmade in italy the only place you can get them is through schnees directly to you so you're getting more boot for your money and uh, every part of these things uh, you can just tell how much care and how much time energy and effort goes into these boots right here and what's also great about schnees is that you can go visit them in bozeman or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt What you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So, Schnees, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, So, I don't want to mess this part up. But when you shop at Schnees, and that is S C H N E E S dot com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21, J A C K21. When you do, you'll save 10%. Off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's. S-C-H-N-E-E-S dot com and promo code JACK21.